1988, I started open micing in comedy clubs just for fun, just to relax and release the tension of my everyday job at the time. In 1989, though, I won a comedy contest, a Johnny Walker comedy competition that part of the prize, aside from the $500 in cash, was work at all of the Funny Bone clubs that were in existence at the time. I think it was about 15, twice a year. So just like that, I was on the road and working as a paid stand-up comedian, even though I wasn't sure I even wanted to be one at that point. But over those weeks and months, something happened. I got hooked. I got the, the fever. Call it whatever you will. But by the time those weeks and months were done, I knew what I was going to be doing as far as my vocation in life. And I did it. I was a road comic. And I did it till I got this gig. Not whiskey business, but the gig at the radio station in 1994. And even then, kept doing the road when, whenever possible. Part of that experience stays with me even today, and I miss it. And I sometimes find myself living vicariously through others that are still out there. Questions, has it changed? Is it different? Am I missing something? You always want what you don't have. Isn't that right, people? Welcome to Whiskey Business, a podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Our apologies for the uh, close to two-week absence that we had, vacations, the 4th of July, etc., etc. But we're back with a, an excellent guest and our guest bottle, Basil Hayden's <laughs> Bourbon Whiskey, what I call the light beer of bourbons because it is the lightest bodied bourbon in the Jim Beam family. We'll talk more about the Basil Hayden later, but I, it's a it's a nice special burden. And my guest has never had it, which makes it even more special. Welcome, somebody who I live vicariously through because he's on the road as a comedian. Dan Swartout is our guest and a longtime friend. I've known you since you started open mic. Yeah. Like 97, 97. Yeah. The first time we did a show together was an AIDS benefit show at the Funny Bone yep. back in fall of 1997. And I remember thinking, you know, because I was maybe five or six months into years, doing open mics. I was going to say, I was maybe five or six years old <laughs> no, at the no, time. And, no, and no. I, was a, I was a comedy prodigy. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there were some papers I had to sign in order to get up there and do my <laughs> shtick, but <laughs> I was uh, I was doing comedy for about five or six months, and I just remember thinking how cool it was to be doing a show at the Funny Bone with Dino, and it was just like one of those things. Like this is, uh, you know, if this is something I hadn't even imagined eight months before. And yeah. here I am, and it was uh, it was a really cool thing, and, and we've been friends ever since. We've been friends ever since. I uh, um, I, I remember watching you and, and a bunch of other guys that that came up with you, and and it was it was fun at that particular time to see, you know, those seeds being planted and 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 seeing you guys find yourself because I I hadn't been all that much longer. I mean, you're talking '97. I was three years into the radio, right? Game, but stand up was still very important to me. I was still headlining at the Funny Bone you know, once or twice a year. Because oh, yeah. I did not know if the radio thing was going to work out, mm -hmm. you know. So I still, I kept my foot deep in those waters, you know, just, just to stay sharp and, 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 and stay intact. What was it like? Because you, you said you won that contest about a year after starting Open Mics. Right. So you're only a year into stand-up. I don't know how many actual times on stage, how many, you know, what, a hundred maybe? Not even. Not even? And you're already out there? Not even. You're already out there working all of those A rooms. That just must have been amazing and insane and intimidating and crazy and, and just kind of... And lucky. Yeah, I and guess. And lucky. Yeah, let's be honest. I mean, this business has a little bit of luck. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, attached to it. Yeah, 1988, I started doing open mics at the uh, 
at the Ramada. I remember hearing about the Ramada. I was a little too young yeah, at the time. The Ramada Inn. And uh, our mutual friend of ours, Rod Paulette. Oh, yeah. Uh, another great stand-up comic. Uh, said, uh, 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 this is my Rod Paulette impression. For those of you who've never seen Rod Paulette, you don't know who Rod Paulette is, but this is my Rod Paulette impression. Uh, yeah, dude, you're pretty funny, man. Uh, you, you ought to come up the Funny Bone. Uh, it's a much better club, and you know, you'd be get a, a little better reaction to some of the some of the shit you're doing. And I think he rused the day. Because yeah. <laughs> I went to the Funny Bone because I did go to the Funny Bone, did the open mics there, and... Um, uh, then there was this Johnny Walker comedy competition. I'm sure everyone in Columbus was in it. Everybody was in it. Oh, yeah. It was different when I started. Right. There was like this renaissance of of, of comedy. You were there, I mean, during the boom period. Yes. The, the mystical, magical boom period, the yes. halcyon days that everyone talks about and they make documentaries about and they write books about. That's where you were. Yeah. Not the struggling 70s when there was just like the comedy no. store in L.A. And, and like, you know, everybody was vying to get on Johnny Carson yeah. or Merv Griffin or or some, you know, talk. And there wasn't that many places or you had to do, work the Playboy clubs. There were comedy clubs literally, I swear to God, I'm exaggerating, but, you know, fucking shoe stores had open mic nights. I mean, everybody had comedy. It seemed like no matter where you went, you could work and get up on stage. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. And everybody had a... A series of one-nighters. I mean, you could work. You could work in literally seven different cities, small towns across the country. You know, in a Holiday Inn, in a Ramada Inn, mm -hmm. in a Days Inn. Everybody decided that comedy is like the the next cool thing. So it, let's have a comedy night. It was. You know, I remember. It was nuts. I was, um, you know, younger. But I had cable, and I was a mm -hmm. teenager, so I saw the boom happen, but I saw it from afar. By the time I got into it, you were lucky to have one open mic a week. Right. Um, there, you know, all those, uh, all those comedy rooms had shut down except for a few core rooms. Right. The, it was a completely different, and then you'd hear people talk about how it was. And you're, and you're like, just, oh, <laughs> why are you punishing me because I'm young? Why? Why? Yeah. Well, but you know what? It's it's interesting that you you say that because you, you like oh I wish I was there and yet there's a part of me that wishes that I was those guys back in the late seventies. Oh yeah. You know who were who were doing their thing at the comedy store in LA. You know back in the in the in the prior days and well prior before that prior was like you know, on fire back mm -hmm. in the seventies. But the guys that were coming up yeah. along the way and you know. I, some, I, I pine for that period mm -hmm. as well because back in those years, I was in high school and I was watching Saturday Night Live, you know, the first season of Saturday Night Live and, and seeing all these great, you know, comic performers do their thing. Going like, man, you know, how do I get to do that? Watching Monty Python episodes on, on PBS and like going, oh, how, could I, how do I do that? How do I get there? Never imagining that, by the time the 80s rolled around, that I'd even be attempting it. It was everywhere, and that kind of changed the entry, you know, the barriers to entry, because back in the day, you know, where are you going to be in Columbus, Ohio, or Indianapolis, or mm -hmm. St. Louis, or wherever, and start doing stand-up? It seemed like, you know, there are three places in America where you could really start doing it. And then, you know, once you talk about the comedy explosion... Anybody from anywhere could start doing stand-up, and it cultivated a tremendous amount of talent. But it did, but with, it, with anything like that, it cu cultivated a tremendous amount of talent, but it also cultivated a tremendous amount of shit. <laughs> there were a lot of bad comics who were working that should not have been working. All bubbles burst. Yes, all bubbles burst. And, yes. And a lot of bubbles did burst, and a lot of people found out painfully you know, because, they, because they were working in Whitesburg, Kentucky at a Holiday Inn, they thought, myself included, that, you know, I'm a working comedian, but they could not get to that next level. And a lot of that passed away, and the strong survived. The funny bones. Right. You know, the improvs, um, you know, those, the, 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 bigger, the bigger clubs. To put it in a non-comedy analogy. I would love that. Dino was trying to sell his house in 2004. 
I was trying to sell my house in 2008. If that is, if that helps anybody out there to understand yeah. what we're talking about, I was there after the crash. I was there. Put in the big short and imagine me selling my house right there. That's me starting comedy in 97. Wise decision, I might add. <laughs> Let's talk about making that leap because... My job before stand-up comedy was I was a, I was a private investigator, but you know, but I was going into the open mics to mm -hmm. kind of chill out and relax. But you, you were an attorney. Well, yes. Initially, I had graduated undergrad from Ohio State in December of 1996. I graduated with a communications degree. Um, I had not started law school until August of 97, and my first open mic was in April of 97. Oh, so comedy first, then law comedy school. Comedy first. I hadn't been accepted. I was kind of in a weird place in early 97. I wasn't exactly certain about what I was going to do next. I had started dating uh, my, my wife, and uh, at the time, we had broken up. Mm -hmm. um, so I started writing stand-up as kind of a way to deal with that. Sure. You know, it's, all right, I, 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 we're, we're broken up. I'm writing jokes about it, and eventually I wrote enough jokes. It's like, i got to find a place to tell these jokes. I've always been a stand-up fan. I'd always wanted to do it, and now I had the impetus for actually getting on stage. And did you know at that point the one of the secrets of successful stand-up is, you know, like or, or in writing for that matter, write what you know? Yeah, you did know. You, did you realize that early on? No, I didn't know that. I just, I just was writing about that because I was pretty distraught. You know, I it's a it's a happy ending. We've been married now for 15 and a half yeah, and years. She's and, and Tasha's wonderful. Tremendous. Man. She's great. But you know, for that period when we had broken up at the time, it was that was the way I dealt with it is I wrote jokes and I also, you know, kind of wanted to show her that I could do bigger things. <laughs> So I'll I, show you. So I was <laughs> like, it wasn't like that. I'll show you. It wasn't what? like I. <laughs> you don't like me anymore, but all these people will. You'll no. see. No, but that's why. That's why I applied to law school. I had never thought about going to law school really? as an undergrad, but I hadn't even taken my LSAT yet because it was nothing I had ever contemplated. Wow. So wow. I applied in March of '97. And I took the LSAT in June of 97, so they couldn't even consider my application until July of 97 when my LSAT score came back. So before I was accepted to law school, I had been doing open mics for, I don't know, four months. And then, yeah, I started at law school that it was just kind of a whirlwind. It was nothing I had planned. It just happened. Was it a struggle going to law school and knowing that you've got to put the time and the work into it? And now four months in the stand-up comedy, are you feeling it? Is it in your veins at that point? It was or It was definitely in my veins. Yeah. There's no question about it. Yeah, it was tough because I, I definitely had the bug throughout law school, and I continued doing stand-up throughout law school, and I started working at, uh, at the Funny Bone here right. locally while I was in law school. So, yeah, it was just that six-month period of my life, and eventually, of course, Tasha and I got back together that same summer, so that sixth period of my life was just one of the, I mean, it was a whirlwind because so many things that shaped my next 20 years happened right then. And when you go through it, you never appreciate that or recognize that, that this period of my life is kind of setting the tone and setting the path for where I'm going to be. 20 years later you don't appreciate that at the time but no. looking back you look and see wow that was a really really pivotal time see i i wonder how it would have been for me if i would have started stand up in my 20s yeah because i was 30 when i started mm -hmm. so uh good and bad i mean good in that when at 30 um i was writing and talking about my life sure. because i'd had life experiences i had my whole 20s married child divorced uh dysfunctional family ethnic family i talked all about my family and based on it so i had things to talk about i didn't rely so much on 
current events or topical humor. Or, or Scooby-Doo. Or, One of my first signature <laughs> bits was about Scooby-Doo. Hey. Like, write what you know, I guess. <laughs> so I wonder, you know, I wonder what, what I would have what I would have talked about at, at, at 23, I don't know. It's such a, you know, especially at that age where my life experience was essentially, I had just graduated college. Mm -hmm. um, I talked about the breakup with my wife, but I quickly moved away from that. Those were like the first three jokes I told on stage. Then I went to the Scooby-Doo stuff. And I'm like, this is killing. I gotta avoid this real life stuff and talk about this nonsense. So you just, you're kind of out there, uh, looking and trying to find your voice and that takes a while and i was going to ask you that question you're 23 yeah. so you were 23 when you started doing stand-up yeah all right so you're doing what you know you're 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 falling to the safety seat and and staying comfortable with the bits that are killing even though they're not oh, you they're terrible man but if I, the, but but they were working they're working and, and i think there's a part of it that you know before you can really write what you know and make what you know funny you have to learn how to be funny and if i'm telling some of these jokes that i look back on and i'm like yeah i'm not really proud of these jokes i was telling these aren't breaking new ground and if i went and auditioned with them today i'd be laughed out of the room sure. but i was learning how to get laughs and then as you translate that i'm learning how to get laughs how to make people laugh learning the timing learning the nuances then as i'm able to kind of hone in on what it is i want to talk about i've got the the base knowledge to move forward so i you know i don't look back in that period cringing totally no. it was a learning experience because but I, I cringe I do cringe well you can cringe looking yes. back because of how far you've come right and so you can look back on those days and cringe but at that particular time especially with the open mics yes let's be honest getting the last no matter how you get them is the currency oh my goodness it's yeah. the currency it's what the manager of the club is looking at on the open mics you know and he's looking at that point you know uh I, I think one of the faults of early days with with comedy club managers was uh there were a few that could see the potential of somebody right but there were but mostly they were looking at the at, at what we call the crowd the, pleasers the crowd pleasers the lpms the laugh per minute yeah yeah and so yeah at at that point at 23 scooby-doo's killing i got <laughs> i got i gotta cash that check i got i got i gotta cash it because i want to come back next i want to come back and i want stage time right so i get that I get that, but when, how far in did you uh, start to transition? You think and, and and find your voice and and be and be you. How long did it take? You know, I I went and just to kind of fill in a little of the story. Graduated from law school in two thousand. Worked for a firm here in Columbus for a couple years. Then went out on the road in May of two thousand two. Um, because I felt like I had gotten as good as I could be with this as kind of a part-time thing with a hobby. You got, yeah. You've got to get out there and work. The duck had to leave the pond. Right. And so I'd say, you know, within about two years of being out on the road, I was real comfortable with what I was writing and the way I was performing. Um, you know, I, even though now as I look back on it, I'd still cringe because I'll pop in a tape from 2004. I'm like, this is awful. Uh -huh. But, you know, that's where I really felt like I'm starting to get this. You know, and they say there's so many times on stage until you figure it out. And mm -hmm. I don't know what that number is. And I, I think it varies for I, everybody. I, I really do. I think I think it's a, it's it's definitely a, a variable number. It's a, but, but definitely those first couple years of getting on stage a lot in front of a lot of diverse audiences, definitely, you know, it was a baptism by fire. And, mm -hmm. and, and if you don't get strong, you're done. Right. So that's, you know, that's where I felt like that's where, you know, the path was set for being able to be pretty good at this. All right, so let's see, you, you mentioned one of the things that I want to get into yeah. tonight, the road. Yes. The road. You, yes. You, the duck has to leave the pond yeah. and get on the road. Now, the road for me, I, you know, I, I will self-admit that I was, I was spoiled. I didn't have to initially look for the work. I had yeah. those funny bone clubs. I was going to 
good cities right and and established clubs that were that were working and you know and they knew what they were doing <laughs> now granted up to that point i was still doing the whitesburg kentuckys and sure. the norton virginias and the one-nighters to kind of get to that point before i did the johnny walker competition and so forth and so on and, and i continued to do those in between the the funny bone weeks you know because uh well you you know exactly what i'm talking about uh you you get a comedy booker and um you'd always you'd fudge a little bit you know can you feature? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can feature. Yeah, I can feature. Yeah, I, I can got, do. I got, I got thirty minutes. I got thirty minutes. <laughs> when you really got eh, twenty, maybe, maybe twenty. Yeah. And if you talk a little slower, a little slower, <laughs> and then you get about seventeen minutes in, you say, "So, what do you guys want to talk about?" <laughs> That's when you know a comedian is stretching. Oh, so, man. what do you guys want to talk about? Well, I, we I, came here to see you. I remember closing some of those first, uh, you know, C rooms as a as a headliner. You know, you're the headliner. And like, oh man, that was like brutal, like oh. brutal. Because can I can I do this? And and when I got through it, literally got through it, it felt like literally like you know talk about you you've got to be strong and 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 make your stand. Like okay, I can do this, but I'm gonna have to do it way better yeah. in the future if I'm gonna actually take this seriously. You know, I would not it, my performance as a headliner in those early days. Oh. W was maybe maybe an adequate feature act right. at the best and that's and that's what i mean that's what you are because your first mm -hmm. promotion you're not going to be no. the best being promoted you know if you first move from host to feature you're not going to be the strongest feature in the rotation if you move first move from feature to closer you're not going to be the strongest closer in the rotation you got to feel your chops because there's differences about doing the amount of time following a strong feature following a weak feature you know dealing with the check drop just some of those a lot of there's a lot of things that audiences don't know about yes. and we'll t we'll educate you here for just a second and tell you that uh um, one of the struggles I had was as an opening act, I was a great opening act. Mm -hmm. I was, I, I, I treated it even early on as I still do today because as you know, I still host yeah. a lot of shows and I love hosting. I do be too. Because I took the, the attitude was for me that this was my show, not in a egotistical way, in a performance way. This is my show, and it's up to me to set the table and convince you that if you like me, you're going to love these guys. You're setting the stage. You're building credibility. Right. You're welcoming to your place, and then you're inviting your friends exactly. who are also going to. Exactly. That's exactly the attitude you set I the took. Tone. Absolutely. And because of that attitude, I was an excellent MC yeah. open, slash opening act. Right. And that almost worked against me. Because they don't want to bump you. Because they because like well, you're the best MC we ever had. Well, I don't want to be the best MC you ever had. <laughs> I want to be I, I do want to be the best MC you ever had, but I also, you know, I want to be in the feature spot. And the feature spot, for those of you who don't know the the uh, the pecking order of comedy, is what we call the rocking chair spot. Oh. The feature spot was just like it's cake. Uh, uh, I can rest a little bit. It's cake. You don't have to deal with the. You don't have to deal with a crowd that's not been warmed up. Right. You don't have to deal with a tired crowd. Nope. The crowd's warmed up. You do about 25, 30 minutes. Yep. Right in the sweet spot of their attention. Yep. And and uh, it's it's cake. It's beautiful. It's cake. If you can't kill in the feature spot, quit. And it, yeah, and it also spoils you. It does. It spoils you, and it makes you nervous about taking that next step up to the headliner because you. You know what I'm talking about. You killed yes. as a feature. Yes. You killed it. You gave an occasional headliner a hard way to go. Some fits. Yes. And then when you're that headliner uh -huh. and you're the one getting the fits, yep. you're like, wow, that guy's crushing up Man. there. You know, because if you're working with a guy who can do a real good 45, a guy or a gal who can do a real go good 45, real good 60, and they condense it down to their best 30, uh -huh. and you're following that, yeah. you're like, all right, I'm going to have to work a little, a little harder, harder tonight. I might have to, you know, actually bring them down a bit to get them back up, introduce them to you're me right, at a right. different level. What if they're doing, I used to do, I, I used to weigh a lot more than I do now, and when I first started losing weight on the road, it's like I would open up with some jokes about being overweight. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, there are guys in front of me 
who are more overweight than I am. And I'm like, what the hell do I do now? You stole my thunder by being fatter. I know. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I can't <laughs> I can't do these bits now because they're like, wait a minute. That last guy was way fatter, way than, fatter you. than you. Were. So where are you coming yeah. from? So what like, are you ah, doing? There's just so many things you have to account for. And People getting with. thrown out of shows. Mm-hmm. People, you know, getting oh, sure. tired. Late Friday. You know, it's late Friday. It's midnight. People have been drinking for four or five hours. And uh-huh. you're like... I just got to get through this. Yeah, I I remember in, in an earlier podcast that that you've heard, uh, um, another radio guy slash former comedian Jerry Elliott. I loved that show. It yeah. was just so fascinating. Uh, thank you. I, we had a great time doing it. But Jerry talks about you know uh, being in that sweet spot as, oh. a, as a feature and and working with Seinfeld and you know like like just having the most incredible set of his life yeah. and coming off the stage and like <laughs> top that <laughs> and then Seinfeld who at that time had way more experience than a Jerry Elliott or myself or you just went up there and just crushed crushed adjusted so and did what he had to do he knew he had the experience it's like it's, it's so and Jerry's like oh yeah I still have to do that yes yeah I still have to be able to know how to do that it's those little subtleties as a headliner that are the toughest thing mm-hmm. to adjusting to that spot. Because if you're going to a good club and you're closing to a show, or closing a show, and the people come out and they're used to really strong comics closing a show, you got to be really strong, and you don't know who you're following, and there are just so many subtleties to adapt to. It's 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 almost hard to explain. It's just you do it and you do it enough that you're like, okay. No matter what the situation is in front of me, I know what I have to do now. And that just comes with experience. Right. Just like stand-up, but there's just the subtleties about the different positions, the different places on the on the bill, the different venues you're playing, where you're playing. You talked about, you know, grinding out on the road. Uh, you know, my last day at the law firm was May 14th, 2002. And I, you know, I was I was at a pretty good law firm and I, you know, I was doing pretty well. And then my first day on the road was May 15th, 2002, where I was being paid $75 to go to Milledgeville, Georgia at a place called The Brick. So I'm driving, you know, I don't know, nine hours for 75 bucks. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing? And that's how, for me, most of those first two years were. Milledgeville, Georgia, um, Dickinson, North Dakota, Wow. Alexandria, Minnesota. You know, I could go on and on. Oh, please give us a list of cities we've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> this is a geography lover's dream. This podcast. <laughs> How was the road for you? Because the road for me at that point in time was, well, granted, not always amazing each and every week right at at, at the at the at the peak of being on the road i was on the road 45 out of 52 weeks a year yeah so you're talking about being in 45 different cities and 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 a bevy of experiences along the way and i was in my 30s yeah so like i said i had the chops of being a little bit older Mm -hmm. a little bit wiser and also was in i i my point is i loved my time on the road. Did you, in the beginning, love your time on the road? And 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 what was you think was different about your experiences on the road as compared to mine? Other than the fact that I was probably enjoying the Renaissance a little bit more than you did. I, I think you know you were working clubs. Yeah, you were working good clubs. You were working with well-known probably established comics you know maybe not well-known now but at the time were you know good club comics um most of the time yeah i I was working very regularly at the funny bone at the time so i'm working with some great great comics some well-known comics um and then the other gigs pretty much all of my road work almost exclusively for those first couple years was your dickinson north dakotas where you are doing stand-up that's the where you're doing stand-up 
next to a blackjack table. Right. Because that's where you do stand up while I, they're playing blackjack. And I did those gigs. I did. Yes. The, I did the Whitesburg Kentuckys, and, yes. the, and then I keep saying Whitesburg Kentucky because that was one of the most awful gigs of my life. So it sticks <laughs> in my memory. And the Norton Virginias, Dickinson, but, North Dakota. Same thing for me. That's why it sticks in my head. But yeah, you're right. I I. So, I did luck out. I worked. Did. I would go up to Cleveland when they had oh, a comedy festival. Yeah, and I'm open and I'm working, or opening or featuring for. I'll rattle off some names oh, that yeah. people still might remember today: Paul Reiser. Oh yeah, Paula Poundstone. Okay, Richard Lewis, Robert Schimmel. I got to add all these to my Those are, to my I mean, comedy that's, resume. That's Hall of Famers right there. Jerry Seinfeld. You're you're rattling off Hall of Famer yeah. after Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer. Jerry Seinfeld at the Funny Bone. I remember when I opened up at the Funny Bone, he goes, and I did a bit about uh, comparing um, uh, being divorced to uh, getting a motorcycle. I, I, I can't even, that's basic. But anyway, I got off stage, and Seinfeld said to me, that's going to be your first television bit. That's a great television bit. You know, great TV bit. No uh, kidding. Yeah. Wow. And, and you know what? It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, maybe it should have been. Maybe things would have gone differently. <laughs> but but the fact that he was back there listening yeah. and recognizing something was like... <gasps> That's always really cool. I remember one of the first times that, um, you know, somebody who was at just another level when you're starting out, yeah. is just they're at another level that you couldn't even possibly fathom, says something to you. Dave Attell, you know, in the green room of the Funny Bone, said some nice things to me. Right. And I was just like, uh, you know, yeah. it's just like it's one of those. It, it, it was really unbelievable. But the, the road for me was the thing I enjoyed about the road more than anything was seeing the work pay off mm -hmm. because I eventually moved from the Milledgeville, Georgia's and the Dickinson, North Dakota's to play in good rooms, and good, good rooms and good clubs. And I remember the most pivotal moment of that early part of the road for me, you know, I'd been grinding out there and not a lot of great gigs. And, you know, I didn't know when the good gigs were coming, but I had been, I'd been working, I'd been get, you know, honing what I'm doing. And I felt like I was getting strong and could hang. I could, thought I could hang in some of those rooms. Of course, I wanted some of those rooms earlier and I'm glad to an extent I didn't get them at the time because I would have just been another guy. Yeah. And when I eventually got into those rooms- You made an impression. Exactly. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a situation where I'm glad I didn't get what I wanted at the time because if I'd gotten in those rooms in 2003, like, ah, Dan can do the job, but we've got, you know, 200 guys, 200 gals could that do can the do the job. job. And- uh, when I got there, it was a little bit different, but it was April 2005. I'm in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I'd signed up for a comedy contest. It was the Carnival Cruise Comedy Challenge. Carnival Cruise, which, you know, has comedy on it, as all most sure. cruise ships do, they were sponsoring contests around the country where comedians would go and you would win a ton of work from the comedy zone. You'd win work from uh, the punchline in Atlanta. Yeah. You'd win work from the club in Fort Wayne that was hosting it. You'd win work on the ships. And I'm like, well, this would be a nice thing. Nice win. Yeah, it would be a nice win. And I'm up there and I travel up there and I'm at, at a McDonald's waiting. Cause I, you know, you had to pay to enter this thing. And there was no guarantee. Because pay to yeah, enter? You yeah. had to pay to enter. You have to do that now for a lot of like comedy festivals or contests like a submission. And so, wow. you know, I'm up there. And it's, I'm old. I don't <laughs> yeah, you were around where they, they paid you to think about comedy. Oh, you're writing a joke? Here's 30 bucks, kid. Can't wait to see it. I mean, it's a little bit different. It was a little bit different. Um, and so I'm sitting there. I'm in the McDonald's. And it's about three years almost since I left the law firm. Right. And I was just thinking there. I'm here in Fort Wayne. I'm sitting in McDonald's. The people who I were working with at the law firm, they're all very successful. And I had just seen, I had just seen at the counter, I had just seen at the counter a little boy and girl hug, brother and sister. And I was like, you know, I'm on the road. I'm missing that kind of family stuff. This is tough. I'm sitting here at a McDonald's waiting to enter this competition with 80 or 90 other comics from across the Midwest. I have no idea what's going to happen. This is, it was like one of those moments where I'm like, if nothing happens here, I'm done. 
And um, wow. And I ended up, you know, the first night they whittled it down, and you just would, you know, do your set in front of the judges. And they whittled it down to 10, and I made that 10. And then I, the next night, went back and won. Wow. And yeah, so it was like, yeah, it, was yeah, like yeah. it was like one of those moments where it was like I was really on the precipice of I'm questioning everything I was doing because those first few years, you know, especially at that time, man, those were some, for me, lean years where you're out there. If you hadn't gotten that, that, that moment of affirmation, at that particular time, do you think things would have changed? There is a real chance that I may have scaled back, you know, and just been a guy that does some open mics, works the local club, uh-huh. but is is that's not the focus of my life at this time. Th- yeah, there was a real chance because that's what I was thinking about in that McDonald's. Um, that's what I was thinking about in that McDonald's. That didn't happen. No. You continued to stay on the road. Continued to stay on the road and, and got into better rooms, mm-hmm. uh, got better gigs. And while we're talking about the road, all you folks out there in Des Moines, come out and see me at the Des Moines Funny Bone, August 31st to September 2nd. <laughs> there you go. There's going to be some tremendous laughs. Love to see you out there. I remember the Des Moines Funny Bone. Oh, yeah. The Des Moines Funny Bone? Des Moines Funny Bone. Oh, one of my favorites. Great room. Just a great room. One of my favorite rooms. Um... Worked it with Vic Henley a, oh, bunch yeah. of, a bunch of times. I've heard the name, seen the headshot, but I've never actually... Never worked with Vic no. Henley? Vic Henley did one of my favorite things ever uh, when we were on the road together. He uh, he got a FedEx package in the mail yeah. at the condo. Yeah. And we're talking about my some of my favorite road moments. Yeah. And it was a FedEx package, and it was some pot. <laughs> okay? All right, this is... <laughs> It was it was a FedEx bag with some pot, but this is my favorite part. The statute of limitations has run out on that. <laughs> it has lawyer. run out, but it was addressed to Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> oh, that was that which I thought was genius. That's the that's the boom times of comedy. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Henley that. and Foxworthy were good friends. They were they were best buds. But he would have the he would he would get pot sent to him on the road and have it addressed to Jeff Foxworthy. You know, it, it's funny because you know sometimes we'll talk about and how times are different. I was in a green room with a friend. We were doing shows, I believe, down in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Funny Bone. And I had brought in a little baggie for him. And it was, of course, a little baggie of tea. I'm a bit of a tea connoisseur. So I had some really good teas for him. And we were just thinking about... This is not the kind of transaction with a baggie that would have happened in a comedy green room 25 no, years ago. No. It would have been much, much different. No. And, you know, I, I remember being... It was a, good tea, though. I, yeah, I bet it, it was. was. really good tea. Let's take a moment to ask you if you are enjoying the Basil Hayden's bourbon. I called it the light beer of bourbons earlier because it's the lightest bourbon, uh, lightest body bourbon in the Jim Beam family. It still has a kick. It's got 80 proof in it. Yeah. It came to us in 1992 in honor of Meredith Basil Hayden Sr. Um, I don't know. I don't know how. Do you drink whiskey on a regular basis? I am not a big. Because I know you smoke cigars. Yeah. And to me, a cigar and a, and a, and a glass of whiskey are, should be hand in hand. You know, I was always I'm more of much more of a beer and wine guy. I okay. worked at a wine shop all through law school, and that's where I learned enough about wine to be dangerous. And I'll tell you what, when you're like 23, yeah, and you're giving people advice on wine as they pull up in their BMWs, and I'm wearing a Raiders jersey, I'm like, oh, this will pair well. <laughs> what the hell do I know? I mean, that's kind of a weird feeling. Well, do, you, do you like this? I do. I mean, yeah, I do. Um, I've never had it before. The only familiarity I had with Basil Hayden is I'm a big fan of the band Fountains of Wayne, uh-huh. who's probably most well known for Stacy's Mom. Yeah. The album before that, Utopia Parkway, they had a song called Red Dragon Tattoo, where the guy in preparation for getting the tattoo drank a ton of Basil Hayden. And I had no idea what the hell it was, so I sang that lyric a thousand times without even knowing it was a whiskey. Yeah. So when you showed it to me, uh, it all kind of... It, well, it's interesting. I, I was taken back to the summer of 99. 
in my Escort EXP listening to Fountains of Wayne. And it's interesting because how old were you at that particular time? Ah, uh, 25. 25, because this particular whiskey right now is uh, very popular with the millennials, which is what I call Hansberry. He's one of the millennials, like it. Um, it was made reference to, in you being a big sitcom fan, yeah. it was made reference to in uh, an episode of Friends. Oh, really? Yes. Chandler... Uh, had to said you know I'll do I can't remember what exactly what the what the comedy premise was but I'll get this done for you if you get a bottle of Basil Hayden and he didn't know what Basil Hayden was had no idea what what it was but it was in the episode um like I said uh 1992 is when it first came on the scene it's good I mean I'm not like I said much of a whiskey drinker so I appreciate you getting the light beer of whiskey for me because this <laughs> reminds me of my uh wine cooler days in college so i appreciate it's, um, that it's a descent you, you you know you've seen old granddad right yes okay it's a descendant of old granddad okay yeah um and uh, M- meredith basil hayden used a larger amount there's a lot more rye in this one than any uh other other bourbon so it's 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 heavy on the rye uh it's aged about eight years give or take because now they just say it's aged appropriately. Artfully aged. Artfully aged. You know, yes. that's what I would have said at the wine shop. This is this is an artful bouquet. You'd love it. So newer whiskey <laughs> drinkers, um, when I first started buying the Basil Hayden, uh, it was it was reasonable at about thirty bucks a bottle. Now it's running between forty five and fifty five dollars a bottle. Because it's hot. Because it's hot. Because of the I'm gonna smack Hansberry because of the millennials. Well, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm drinking it. Whatever. 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 Not doing much for me. Whatever. <laughs> and I, the baby boomer, <laughs> sit like, back and just wait for you to all just move on to gin. <laughs> <laughs> this is what Kevin Arnold and Paul Pfeiffer would drink. <laughs> there you go. You're still on the road today. I'm still on the road, not as much as I was, like you. But at the at peak, the, at the peak, I was doing about 40 weeks a year. I I stepped back a little bit with the focus of trying to have a kid. Were you married? I was married. I've been married. I mean, when I left, <coughs> I went. My I, I got married in February of 2002. Went out on the road in May of 2002. So I've been married the whole time, and um, you know, it was hard being away. It was definitely hard being away, and I think, you know, being with her has been so wonderful. She's always been so incredibly supportive. Um, Just for our audience who, who who maybe don't know, maybe you know a little bit more about Dan Swartout now as we've been talking, but I got to say, and I'll give her props, Tasha is awesome. She's amazing. Your wife is awesome. She's incredible. She's and now brilliant. You got, she's and a I, wonderful mom. She's a wonderful, and you have a beautiful child. You we have do. a beautiful baby girl. We do, six years old. Yeah. And uh, that's been that's been the most amazing thing. So that's you know I'm on the road some. I pick and choose, and that's kind of nice to be in the spot where I can pick and choose, mm-hmm. and I can go where I want to go, and I can say no a lot. And the things that I used to jump at and say, oh man, I'll be there. I can say no, I don't want to do that. So it's nice being in that position, and it's it's you know I you know. I want to see her grow up and I want to be there for all that. And that's you, that's that's hard to do when you're gone 40 or 45 weeks a year. It was. Because if, I, you, don't, if you don't go on the road, you're not making money. There's no sick days. There's no vacation days. There's no off time. If you're not doing shows, you aren't getting paid. I will attest to that because when I was on the road, now I, I was married when I was young, mm-hmm. got divorced when I was 27, did the private investigator thing for a, a few years. Uh, for the first year I was doing stand-up, literally, when I was doing those 15 weeks that I won at the Funny Bone, mm-hmm. I was still an investigator. I was still doing investigative work. But the biggest moment was is that I was away from my daughter. Mm-hmm. And that was hard. Oh, yeah. So when I got the, the gig here at Sunday 95, the radio station, my daughter was 13. And Perfect. Part of, and part of the impetus of taking that job, thinking it wouldn't last more than a year, was... You know, I'm going to go home. My daughter's 13. It's kind of a big year. Oh, huge. Development-wise, I'll be home for a year, and I will be there for that year at least and, and, and kind of maybe make up for some lost time, which you can never do. You never can right. really truly do completely, but you can give it a shot, make up for some lost time. And that was part of the reason I came back because I felt guilty. I, I missed 
I missed a lot of those, a lot of those plays, a lot of those moments, a lot of those recitals, a lot of those, um, you know, uh, fifth grade Christmas concerts and and so forth and so on. So I get what you're saying. Um, I think it's kind of great that that your wife and your child are still your first love. Oh, and, and as much as you love doing stand up, that is still the second tier. Oh yeah, and and it is. It's you know that first time when I first took a little bit of a step back, and from being on the road forty weeks a year, forty five weeks a year, constant, constant travel, constant shows. To work in a lot more regularly here at the Funny Bone, and that's just been wonderful because I've been able to work at the Funny Bone a lot, and you know, so when even when I'm not on the road, I'm able to do a ton of comedy here, mm-hmm. and I'm still able to go on the road where I want to go. Uh, but that first, you know, time, and I'm just thinking, you know, that first year where I kind of took that step back, I'm like, there's a stage out there I should be on right now, mm-hmm. and that was hard for you know a year, year and a I half. Bet. There's like there's a stage that I should be on because I've been on that stage forty Fridays last year, and this year I'm not, and or at least this week, or maybe two weeks out of the month, or or whatever it is. And that was that was a tough that was a tough you know <laughs> feeling to deal with for a little while because you're like you're kind of at a crossroads a little bit. I've been very very lucky that. You know, working here at the club, doing a lot of corporate gigs. And as you know, the corporate gigs are, are, are great. Able to do a lot of corporate gigs, travel where I want to travel. It's, it's actually worked out better than I could have expected. Are you happy? Yeah, I really am. I'm really happy. And do you still have, at this point, where we're at right now, um, in 2017, is there still quietly... Uh, a dream of where you want to go and what you want to be as far as stand-up? You know, it, it's cool. This year, I got to work one of the Zanies rooms for the first time, you know, just last month. So I closed one of the Zanies clubs. In Chicago. In, in suburban Chicago. Yeah. And that was awesome to be in a new market, go out there and do 50, 55 minutes every night. That was awesome. Being in a new market, hoping that's a market I can, you know, maybe go back to work again you know I, I i'd like to get better keep getting better at stand-up you know the chances of me moving to los angeles or moving to new york and, and doing that at this stage of my life they're nil uh but if i can keep having fun keep doing good shows keep getting better at what i do because every time i come off stage and i find a new punchline or a new tagline. Isn't that the sweetest thing? Or, or just even a vocal inflection that changes the laughs and takes it from here to here. That's just still an awesome feeling. Dude, you, you, like I said, we've known each other a long time. You know, I've told you, I've experienced, you've watched me come yes. off stage. I mean, at, at 58 years of age, yes. I still keep my foot in the stand-up waters, and I still write jokes. Oh, yeah. We just did a corporate gig, not a corporate gig, we did a... Charity we, thing we Friday night. A charity gig for the, uh, for the Fraternal Order of Police. And you came. I came off stage. You go. I never heard that bit. Mm-mm. It was a. It was a. It was. A, it was your bit about going in on how uh, Valentine's, Valentine's how, Day. How Valentine's changes through the years. Yeah, and you're just like, I won't spoil the bit, but it was a great <laughs> bit. I'd like. I'd never heard that. Before. I know, but I'm still writing them, and I still love. Yes. That feeling of writing something new and having it work. Oh, it still is a rush. It still is. But so, do you have you have you, and 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 don't take this this phrase the wrong way. When I say, have you given up on the hope that there might be a sitcom or a movie or uh, getting to that level that we see so many other famous people get to, the Kevin Hart's and et cetera, et cetera? Do, do, do you still strive for that? Or is it one of those things like right now, like if it's meant to be, it'll happen? I think that is more than anything. You know, I. Everybody gets into comedy, I think, with those kind of stars they have in their to. eyes. Why don't you? Yeah. Why, you have to think that I'm going to get into this because someday I'm going to be at that upper echelon. Right. And everyone gets into this with stars in their eyes and thinks about the dream of what could be. But, you know, at this stage in my life, I'm just happy to go out there and work and 
do good shows. Uh, I, I'd like to record my second album fairly soon, within the next year, year and a half. Second album? Yes. So we have a first album? We do have a first album. Out there? Out there. It's that called, people should know about? It's called 100% Certified HPA. It's on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, Sirius XM. I don't have an album. It's pretty exciting. And so, <laughs> look, what? let's do it. <laughs> do you want to produce my album? Yeah. So, you know, uh, when, when people find me online because yeah. they've heard my CD or or when, you know, people come up after a show and say that, you know, we enjoyed seeing you, we'd like to see you again. You know, just being able to have a, a, a level of performance that I'm pleased with. Yeah. You know, and I, to be honest, and... and to be honest, I'm so much farther than I probably ever thought I would be. It lasted longer, lasted longer than you ever yeah, believed it would. Yeah, you know, and it's still cool when you go somewhere and you see your name on a marquee. Sure. It's still cool when, when stuff like that happens. It's still cool when you get into a new club and work something new. And it's, it's, that stuff's still cool to me. I, I, you know, I, I'm, as long I'm just happy with having a, if I, if I ever stopped trying to get better if i ever stopped trying for another laugh another punchline another tagline then i can say i've kind of given up but i'm still every time i'm like i come off stage and i listen to the recording because i record every show and i think to myself in the back of my head when i do something different that tag got me an additional laugh. That's yeah. a brand new laugh that's now a part of my set. I got to remember to do it next time. And all of a sudden, a bit with four laughs becomes a bit with five laughs, and then six laughs, and then seven laughs. If I stop doing that and just start phoning it in, then I'm done. Then what am I still doing? I'm out right. there trying to create. I'm out there trying to have a good time. And as long as I'm happy with that, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. So you're still pushing the envelope. Yeah. As much as you possibly can. What's, and why not? I mean, if if you if you ever you know, and I've talked to people who've gotten out of the business, and they always tell me, they always tell me I stayed in a year too long. Really? Yeah, because they're like that last year. I knew I was phoning it in. I knew I wasn't trying anything. I had a set that worked. I just did that, and I knew. I should have quit a year earlier because uh, that last year I wasn't accomplishing anything. I, I don't want to be the guy that says I stayed a year too long. If I'm done, I want to... You want to be done. I want to be done. I don't yeah. want to be a guy that's just like I'm out there. And do you think you have the presence of mind to know when that will be? I think so. Yeah. I hope so, but yeah. I'm probably not because nobody ever does. <laughs> I, I, I like to think that I have that same presence of mind um, that I'll know when, okay, uh, I, I shouldn't go up there anymore. That hasn't happened yet. No. Uh, I do regret that I don't like like this gig we did on on Friday. That's the first time I've been on a stage like in almost three months. So I was rusty, and I was like, ah, I was kicking myself like, ah, damn it, I should have gone to the Funny Bone beforehand, and so on, so on, and and I was like almost pissed off, yeah, if you will. But you have, um, I think that if there's any comedians that are starting out and, and listening to this, or even some that have been on the road for a, for a while, you are fortunate that you've, you've conquered, you've got the best of both worlds. I, you know, and I've had people tell me that, and I don't want to get overconfident with that. No, because but you have family. I do. You have a wife who loves you. I do. You have a beautiful daughter. Very lucky. And you spend a lot of time with them. You make the time for them. Try. You do that, and then you still... Are, are doing what you love to do for a job. That, my friend, is, in my opinion, a huge definition of success. Uh, you know, and it's, I, it was, you know, June was a good month. I was on stage a lot, did a lot of shows, and uh, not doing as many shows in July. And that's cool, because I'm spending a lot more time with family. Right. Writing some stuff. I'm, I'm excited to get, and I'm still, you know, that's the way, I, and I, it's harder, it's harder to get to an open mic and work on stuff when you're older and you've got responsibilities. Right. But I'm like, I've got this backlog of stuff I, I've been writing. I cannot wait to try. Exactly. And so, yeah, you know, I, I, I like to think of it. I like to think of it that way. So I, you know, I, I don't want to sound like the guy that's, 
oh, I'm just so happy, and this has worked out exactly. When I started doing stand-up, this is exactly what I, I know you I don't want to be that be, guy. But, but I'm very happy with where I'm at. But there's nothing wrong with being that guy. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you, know, you, you, you mock it a little bit jokingly as a cliche, but it's not a bad thing. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. I've been, you know, I've been very... To have that satisfaction it, in life, you yeah. know, you talk about new bits, here's this little, this little black book. I in see there, it. In there, and, and I'm still... I'm still writing down ideas and See, jokes and so forth and so on. Thinking about, again, the difference in comedy, 25 years ago, that little black book would have been a lot different. A lot different <laughs> with what's inside that little black book. My little black book? You, I, I don't yeah. even know if you under... Is, is that a reference that... Or he is that too old enough for, he is that too old a reference? Okay. He, he, yeah, he's worked with me for a long time. Yeah, yeah, he's worked with me for a long time. Yeah, that little black book back when I was on the road back was way different. The Larry Dallas little black book. I mean, if you're five years old, you're watching Three's Company, you know there's something about a little yeah. black book. Now the little black book is just full of ideas and thoughts and references that I want to want to incorporate yeah. in there. Yeah. A whole separate podcast might be to actually go, uh, you know, bullet for bullet point on our years on the road. Mine were probably way different than yours. Yeah. They, I mean, I know they were. In fact, upstairs is a stack of comedy journals. Oh, boy. That date from first open mic. No kidding. Up until... The gig at Sunday ninety five in nineteen ninety four. So there are completely. So you were documenting the history of Dino Tripodis on the road. Wow! And I look back on some of those journals and I read some of those entries and I go, "Oh dear lord! <laughs> Should I burn these now?" <laughs> uh, because yeah, there is there is. A lot of stuff in there, and it's interesting because it, it's not only just about the sets and and the time, but it's about where I was um, emotionally, sure, and psychologically. Well, you know, and, and one of the what, sorry to interrupt, but no, one no, of the no, things one of the things about being on the road is you spend a lot of time by yourself. Uh huh. You know, if you're driving 500 miles, you're spending all day in a hotel room. I mean, there's a lot of time by yourself, and a lot of time where you know. It's just you and your thoughts. Yep. Yep. And those are all transcribed <laughs> in a stack of journals that is literally probably about six to eight inches high. Now, the lawyer in me is saying, I can't wait to make a discovery request, oh, a request yeah. for the production of documents. Oh, you're, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's, there, there are friends that are way ahead of you. I bet. There are friends that are way ahead of you. Like, when you die, please let me have everything that you've ever written coming into my possession. Yeah, there, there's a lot of guys, there's a lot of friends out there who think that upstairs in my office is like a girl with a dragon tattoo type of of materials that never, ah, I'll never publish that. You know, it's just kind of a funny thing about the girl with the dragon tattoo. I didn't know anything what that was about. I didn't know anything about the book. I didn't read anything about the movie. So when I first heard the title, The Girl with the drag Dragon Tattoo, I thought it was something like The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. <laughs> I thought it was a movie like that. Because I'm just listening to the ta this title, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be some fun family film. No. And apparently I found out later it's not, but my initial thought was, you know, Divine yeah. Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood <laughs> or something. <laughs> Wow, you just rattle off those titles like you've actually read those books. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, that'd be a good book club, wouldn't it? A comedy, a comedian's book club that me once a month to discuss. Has to be wine involved. Oh, wine. <laughs> or or <laughs> a bourbon. Swarty, which I call you affectionately. Um, you're a great friend. Thank you. You become a great you, friend. And... Uh, one of the best moments in comedy was when I got to meet you, and we've stayed friends. We do a lot of uh, shows together. A lot of great stuff together. We do a lot of benefits together. Yes. Uh, you've taken over the holiday benefit uh, at, at the Funny Bone over the last couple of years. That is just which tremendous. When I say take over, as far as organizing it, I'm still your I'm still your host. And absolutely. And, and I don't know how many more years that's going to go. And that's but, what he's been saying for the last three years since I took it over. But, but since you took it over, you once again, 
just kind of the person you are and the dedication you have to the craft and the uh, sincerity, I guess is the word I'm looking for, that you actually put out there has like, okay, I'll do it one more year. I'll do it one more year. Not only for the kids, because right. it's important for the kids, but I do it for you. Well, thank you. I and do it for you. you know? it's, it's, that's, that's been really exciting to be a part of because when I was um, – you know, starting out, that was such a big deal. It was the big Funny deal. Bone Christmas Show, and I to be invited on it. I wasn't invited on it until either 2005 or 2006. So, I mean, that's kind of when I was talking about those struggles of those early years, not getting those great gigs, not even getting at my home club asked to be on the show. Show on the Christmas it's show. It's those kind of struggles. You're like, well, when am I pushing through? So to take it over and to do the good things that we've done with it, and we've we've had some success with it, which is just tremendous. We've had tremendous success with it in the last in the last couple of years. It's just you, so you, we, exponentially, we just kind of just like taking it to another level in the last couple of years. So, so now I kind of want to ride that ride yes, a little bit longer. And that's why you know if it takes Basil Hayden's <laughs> or or a Pinot Noir oh, to get you gosh. to come back, it's not going to take a Pinot Noir, <laughs> whatever the case might be. Perhaps I'm a Gewurztraminer. I'm hoping that I will do it until I know I can't. I hope I have that moment of clarity that, that says, you know what, I don't need to do this anymore, or I shouldn't do it anymore. But I will tell you, I'm nowhere close to that. I don't think you're anywhere close to it either. Nowhere close to that. I thought this last year was one of the best years ever, and you know, it's such a part of the tradition of it. I I don't even know how you know. When I don't do it for yes. the first year, what's going to be? It's in the back of my well, mind. I'm I like, I maybe that's when I'd stop I, organizing I it. Suggest I pass you, it to somebody else. I'm I like, suggest you, you, take this. you look in a Santa suit, my friend, <laughs> because that's going to be part of it. Yeah, nobody would be sending me shots. They'd be sending me Chardonnays. <laughs> Chardonnays. Get up another Chardonnay. Oh, Room temperature Lord. this time, please. Yeah, yes. You heathens. <laughs> <laughs> that is too good a Chardonnay to be chilled. Come on. Oh, man. Um, thank you. No, thank you. This has been so much fun. This uh, has been probably, uh, I, we've, we've done quite a few of these now. Um, we're getting a nice backlog of, of whiskey business installments, but um, I knew this would be a good one. It's been fun. For a lot of reasons. Uh, and, and, Aside from just being my my friend, I knew we would have some good laughs and some good stories. And, and a little inside baseball. And a little inside baseball. Sometimes it's just, you know, when, when you sit down with another comedian and you talk shop, it's a really cool experience because there's such a small percentage of people you can do that with. I, I initially wanted to do this with you and another comic who's been on the road, but I'm glad that I, I kind of pushed that idea aside and just went one-on-one -on -one with you. Because I love working with you. Oh, we and, have some and, really and, and, and I'm sorry, whiskey business people. I don't mean this to be a love fest right now. But I took this guy to I took this guy to Steubenville, we went to Steubenville. Ohio. I took him to Steubenville, Ohio with me to do a gig in Steubenville. We had a good time. And we had a great time. Even though I told you, uh, keep the car running. <laughs> <laughs> in case in case it didn't go well. We had a good time. But, but it went great. But, you know, when he talks about that whole square thing, after it, on the way home, we stopped in Wheeling and went to the casino. <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm playing Let It Ride at the table, and I win. He's like, okay, you won. Let's go. Let's go. You've won. You got money. You, you're up. You're up. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. I just, I just, when I'm like, when I, and even when we did that uh, charity show the other night, yeah. played, got up $5, yeah. lost that $5, even, cashed out. Gone. Done. Five. Done. $5 winner. I'm, I'm out. I'm done. No, yeah. It, I was looking for, I remember uh, coming back because it was Super Bowl Sunday, uh -huh. the Sunday we were coming back. Yeah. And I was looking everywhere, hoping on the drive back we could find some Iron City light beer. Yeah, we, and we tried. We, we stopped tried. like at three different places. And we couldn't find it anywhere. Oh, we were very frustrated. It was. It was a rough day. <laughs> rough day. It was, it was a bad ending to a great <laughs> trip, not being able to find the IC light. Dan Swartout has been our guest. The guest bottle has been Basil Hayden. If you've not had the Basil Hayden Millennials, apparently it's right up your alley. And everybody else who enjoys bourbon, um, it, it, it's a fine, fine bourbon from the uh, good folks at Jim Beam. So check that out. And Dan Swartout, 
Thank you. Thank you. This has been awesome. So yeah. much fun. I'm going to look so forward to actually listening to this yeah, me too. again, you know, back. This will be great. Yeah. You listen to it with your wife? Sure. Yeah. Sure. She sh- you should because we said a lot of nice we things about her. We said a lot of nice things about her. A lot of nice things about her. A lot of nice things her. All well deserved. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. All right. So let me say Whiskey Business is a Never the Luck production recorded with the cooperation of the Columbus Radio Group. Uh, all the opinions are those of your host and my reluctant guests <laughs> and are never meant to offend, only to inform and hopefully entertain. And so, until the next bottle, see you. has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.